Your name is synonymous with two huge court cases, and many people will see you as Gina Miller, anti-Brexit campaigner, but how would you describe yourself? Well, it's quite frustrating when that label is uh, put out there, because both cases were about the fundamentals of our democracy and our constitution. It was about parliamentary sovereignty, that we pay our money, we make our vote to elect individuals who then are part of the system of scrutinising government and ensuring there is no overreaching of government uh, ministerial power. And that's exactly what the two cases were defending. So the parliamentary sovereignty uh, slogans that were being said throughout the referendum and then after the referendum were exactly what I was defending. So it's much more important than Brexit, in my view. And it was simply about giving Parliament its voice. Going back to your first case, the the, the one in Article 50, which you said was to maintain the principle that, that Parliament was sovereign. Was the court the right place to resolve that, do you think? Yes, because if you look at Article 50... It says quite clearly that a member state can leave along the lines of its constitutional requirements. And our constitutional requirements is that if people's rights are going to change, which it would have done by or has done with triggering Article 50, that needed to involve our parliament and could not be under the royal prerogative. So it was a fundamental rewriting or would have been Mm -hmm. a fundamental rewriting and precedent, new precedent set for how royal prerogative could be used on the domestic plane. So it was very much the case that it had to be tested in the courts to see if it was legal, because if it hadn't been and the Prime Minister Prime Minister May had triggered Article 50 using the royal prerogative, it could have been a scenario further down the line where we as a nation could have been sued by the EU for not following Article 50. I mean, and you were also keen to, to make sure that Parliament had a bigger role throughout, which they did get, but do you think they used it well in the end? It was disappointing, I won't hide that, that having fought for Parliament to be back where they should be legally and morally and in our representative democracy, that in the first case, they didn't, in my view, do the scrutinise the government. They didn't ask for the impact studies, which are actually legally required uh, when you have public spending and uh, decisions that are going to impact on different parts of the country in different ways. So the MPs rubber stamped on that occasion, in my view, rather than actually scrutinising the plan. It's all very well to say we had the vote, but we had a vote without a plan. And surely that would it should have been in the best interest of their uh, constituencies to ask what the plan was. In the second case, I have to say I found the day after when Parliament returned, after the prorogation case was won, the, their, the tone, the debates were shameful. Mm. I know the rest of the world was looking at our mother of parliaments and I felt that the MPs really and all actually across the House behaved disgracefully, but particularly the government, uh, because what they did was then chose to rewrite the judgment and the case and actually not explain why it was such an important case. So I worry that their rewriting of the judgments in a political narrative will actually damage the independence of the, independence mm. of the courts and, and the judiciary, which are very important pillars of our democracy. The independence of the rule of law and the courts is fundamental to our democracy. And what is it that's particularly caught your attention or worried you about this government's agenda? There's a so-called page 48 in the manifesto that sets out its plans for the constitution. I think both page 48 in the constitution, in the manifesto, and what we've heard since post-election and in the last few weeks about this constitutional committee is very, very worrying because I can't understand three things. One is, is this the right time with Brexit, the hardest part of Brexit negotiations yet to come? 
and the fact that you've got the law, the Aquis coming back onto our law, uh, books, our British law books, without any sort of understanding of how that will operate. And the constitutional, thirdly, issues down the road that could possibly result from Brexit in Northern Ireland and Scotland, why this is particularly the time to be considering these issues. I I know some commentators are saying it's exactly the time, but I would argue that it needs time, commitment, um, resources to be able to come up with recommendations that are really robust. And to do a short, quick committee um, seems to me to be more about revenge than actually Mm. true reform. And do you sense, I mean, having said you were sort of let down by Parliament that time around, what, what, what's your sense on the way Parliament's reacting to this government's plans or proposals for the Constitution? Do you sense there is engagement and the sort of capability to, to scrutinise, to respond? Yeah, good government takes good scrutiny. And at the moment, I have to say I'm in a sort of a, a mixed mind at the moment, because with an 80-seat majority, I worried where they had, in effect, signed a pledge that they would just be sort of more of nodding dogs than parliamentary um, uh, scrutineers. And uh, I haven't seen that. And what has given me encouragement has been the way the backbench, the Tory backbench in particular, have conducted themselves in connection with um, HS2, Mm -hmm. Huawei, and also Flybe. So I think they are showing that they, now that Brexit is put to bed, if you like, uh, from a legal point of view, that they will do their roles. And I hope that carries on cross-party. I mean, you talked, you supported the idea of a progressive alliance before before the last election, and it never it never came about. What's your view of how opposition parties actually sort of navigated the last few years, navigated Brexit and the challenges that came their way? Going all the way back to post the referendum vote in 2016, it seemed to me to be the most logical and, uh, if you like, a sound way of approaching Brexit, the next phase of Brexit, was to actually have a cross-party uh, committee who were involved because they would have to vote on it. And it wasn't about one party or one side of the argument. It was always going to be about our entire country. And, you know, the uh, our democracy, again, works when there is a strong opposition, but the opposition really weren't showing their strength. And they should have been part of these debates and asking questions all the way through. So I think it is a sad indictment of our politicians that they didn't actually, in my view, execute the roles in the way they should have done in the independent way that they should have done. And uh, we have not, in effect, had a proper opposition, uh, official opposition. And not working together before in October of last year, I think, is when um, this election was won that we've just had, when the Conservative Party proposed the election after the, if you're breaking down of talks between the uh, Labour and Lib Dems, I think that's when mm. um, this government's fate were, mm. was going to be that they would win. And before the, I think it was ahead of the European Parliament's Parliament elections last year, you were a big advocate for tactical voting and you said it'll be necessary to stop Nigel Farage and his vision of the country. Kind of work then, do you think Farage is, is, is done now? We've sort of heard the last of him in this debate. No, I think on tactical voting, it's what has uh, surprised me in the data was the effect and the amount of tactical voting, because actually tactically, tactical voting returned the Tory majority we're seeing because they were lent the vote by so many people who would normally not give um, the Tories their vote. So tactical voting on one hand would uh, work, but obviously it didn't work in the coalition in the Remain parties, which is yes. where we were campaigning for, um, because again, it wasn't about defeating the Tories. It was trying to defeat the majority that they would win, because as we see now and again we forget
forget that in 2017, the Mrs. May, when she called the election, people were talking about a 100-seat majority at that mm. point. And to my mind, that would have been an autocracy, not a democracy. And I was worried that this would be the same. But as I said, I think the MPs are showing more of a, if you like, scrutiny than mm. I thought they would do. I, I worry about what happens next, because if we are now looking at a Labour leadership that is more of Corbyn, Corbyn Mark II, and we don't have a strong opposition, then we possibly have a government for the next two terms. And who will be the scrutinisers if they overreach, if they are um, intent on hampering the courts and the judiciary? Mm. I mean, in that case, if if, if it's... They do have this two-term and a big majority. Do you expect maybe more legal challenges outside of Parliament? I think there are different elements of it. I mean, we're already hearing that uh, with the decision on terrorists and retrospectively increasing sentences, that there is very likely to be a legal challenge. I'm, I, personally, I don't think it will win, but uh, there will be one. I think when it comes to human rights, social justice, people f- feeling disenfranchised, they may well be. But I hope we don't get to lots and lots of legal cases. I think we have to find a way of select committees working better and cross-party collaboration so that we don't have to resort to the courts. Mm-hmm. Going back to Brexit one more time, Tony Blair has said that it's no longer the time to put forward arguments for rejoining and sort of remain and rejoin are now done. Is that something you agree with? I wholeheartedly agree because a divided country does not prosper um, and we don't know where we will be as a country. We don't know where the EU will be. Um, It's not as though we operate in isolation from a geopolitical or geoeconomic point of view. But I would say let's give the government the space and time. When I say time, I mean up till the end of June Mm -hmm. to see where their plan is and where they can get to with the EU on a negotiated deal. What I do worry more than rejoining at the moment, which I see as a uh, danger in the headlights, if you like, is the prospect of no deal towards the end of the year and us coming yet again, which I don't like the term cliff edge because I think it would be a dangerous, uh, it's a dangerous term. But we as a country with no deal working just on WTO, operating just on WTO terms, we would be the only country in the world who are only operating on WTO. It's a cold, hard place. So that, for me, is where we need to keep our eye on. What is it that they decide by June? Because we do not have an extension as an option because the Withdrawal Act has made an extension illegal. So unless there's a political will to reverse that part or amend that part of the Act, which I really can't see happening, then we will be heading towards no deal. And what um, what formal your campaigning or how, what platforms will you be using both on no deal and the sort of wider constitu- constitutional issues we were discussing earlier? I would like to stay involved on the constitutional issue, especially on human rights and so access to justice and social justice, because I think that's about all of us. It's strong civic voices as well as expert voices, I believe, are needed in that debate as we go forward. If this turned, turns out to be a vengeful government, the language, some of the language the government is using would not be out of place in Orban's government. You know, the idea of the attacking the judiciary is very worrying and should, we should all be very alarmed about it. Um, And when it comes to no deal, I have to say that I think there is a place 
for a proper, honest debate with the public about what no deal means sector by sector. And if, again, the government is saying that they will not be talking to to organisations such as the CBI, sector organisations and representatives and association, then where will the government get the information about what that impact means? So I think there is a may well be or is a place for a non-partisan, information-led, fact-based um, unemotional accounting to the public of what the impact of No Deal would be. You're very much a public figure these days. Did you anticipate that this would be a consequence, an outcome of the last few years? Uh, no, <laughs> simply. Um, I've been a campaigner for a long time. I'm well known in, in the charity sector, in the investment world, where I would go back to my campaigning, but not on the uh, from the if you like, political stroke legal constitutional point of view, even though I've been very much keeping an eye on it for the last 10 years or so, because it has been worrying me, the erosion of of parliamentary accountability. But I always anticipated or I saw that it would be one case. Mm. Um, I didn't think the government would appeal when we won in the High Court. So I I thought it would be a matter of maybe six months. Mm. So never envisaged that there would be a second case and I would be still doing it three years on. And I have to say that the one that luckily we didn't have to go to court um, on is I also started a pre-action process with the government on the DUP payment, the billion pound payment. Mm. Yeah. And luckily at the end of that summer, there's been three summers of preparing for legal cases yeah. um, in 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 2017, the government at the end of the summer did agree that there needed to be an act of parliament, which then subsequently it was in the supplies and estimate bill in the March, the following March, because they were going to make the first payment to the DUP in the October. And our pre-action process, my pre-action process stopped that payment. Mm. So, you know, we didn't actually, and that's what I was hoping would happen with the prorogation case as well, because we'd started the pre-action protocol process on the 11th of July, even before um, Mr. Johnson was elected as prime minister, because we were worried about the uh, soundings coming from his campaign. I had hoped that they would have said, yes, we can't do this. And we would not have had to go to court. So it's been um, a process I didn't anticipate. And I definitely did not expect the levels of abuse mm. and the, uh, the way the media have portrayed me, some media, um, and having to invest so much time, money and effort in it is there are things I never anticipated. I remember a few years ago, there was a Lib Dem party conference where it was a, a wash of rumours that you were about to declare, <laughs> <laughs> possibly even stand as leader. Um, that didn't happen. But no. do you have any political ambitions either to become an MP or go into the House of Lords? No, at this moment in time, I will stay with my campaigning because I think as a, a non-partisan uh, voice, if you like, a non-politically aligned voice, I possibly have more respect in that I come at it from a point of view of transparency, scrutiny and being led by the data and empirical evidence. And I think it's much more reasoned. It's a much more reasoned place for me to be. And hopefully I can achieve more than I can uh, being directly involved in politics right now. 